Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On this week's program... I think everybody's purchasing power has shrunk according to their level of assets and income. I think it's affected everybody because when your uh, currency devalues as, as dramatically as Iran did over the past year, when prices of goods go up up to 100%, it affects everybody. I think for the middle class and the working class, we hear families that can't afford to have any kind of protein meat or chicken for several months, that they've had to, Iranians have had to change their diet uh, because they can't afford the goods. We speak with New York Times reporter and Iran expert, Farnos Fasihi, about the impacts of the U.S.'s back-breaking sanctions on the Iranian population and the Iranian economy in general. Later in the program, Palestinian filmmaker Sameh Zouabi talks to us about his award-winning film Tel Aviv on Fire. Do stay with us. Last May, Donald Trump unilaterally violated the 2015 nuclear agreement between Iran, the U.S., and five other world powers, and followed this up by reimposing harsh economic, trade, and financial sanctions against Iran. Back in July of 2015, the U.S., along with Russia, China, and the European Union, had agreed to a joint comprehensive plan of action. Under this agreement, Iran would be protected from economic sanctions in exchange for accepting to subject its nuclear research program to international inspections. This agreement was widely seen as a crowning achievement of former President Barack Obama's foreign policy, but was vociferously opposed by Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Zionist forces and their allies in the U.S., Once in power, the Trump administration decided to violate and terminate this hard-won accord, calling it a, quote, bad deal. And it has since ramped up what it calls a maximum pressure campaign against Iran, a maneuver aiming to strangulate Iran's economy, which now extends as far as bribing Iranian tanker captains to surrender control of their ships to the U.S. With so much attention given to the war of nerves between Iran and the U.S., how are the U.S.'s back-breaking sanctions impacting the Iranian population and the Iranian economy in general? To get some clarity, I spoke with Farnas Fasihi, who's an Iran expert and a journalist at the New York Times. When the Trump administration exited the nuclear deal in May of 2018, it reimposed economic sanctions and banking sanctions on Iran, which meant that all foreign investments uh, going to Iran would be subject to secondary sanctions if European or Asian countries post the nuclear deal had invested in any of Iran's energy or um, economy sectors, they had to pull out. If uh, shipping and banking, which meant that Iran uh, could not easily access the international banking system and uh, bring money, conduct financial transactions in exports and imports of goods or or access to its revenues. 
So this was the first part, which, which was uh, pretty significant. For about six months, the U.S. gave Iran um, oil waivers. It allowed Iran to continue selling its oil, and then it sanctioned its oil. And then in November of last year, and then this May, May 2019, the Trump administration ended the waivers, which effectively it means that Iran can't legally, by U.S. sanction standards, can't sell its oil. And even if it sells its oil, would have a very difficult time getting access to the revenue mm. through the banking sanctions and bring transfer that money back to Iran. At the moment, is Iran selling its oil to China and India? The U.S. sanctions are aimed at bringing Iran's oil exports down to zero. Yeah. That is impossible to do short of the U.S. blocking, physically blocking tankers that transport Iranian oil and finding out actually which tankers they are. What we know is that through shipping companies uh, or tracking companies that track tanker oils and through port data is that Iran's export of oil has dropped dramatically. Before the sanctions, Iran was selling about 2 million point one barrels a day of oil. And now the best numbers are about between 500, 300 to 500,000 barrels. That's a pretty dramatic drop. So it, mm-hmm. it's had a real impact on them. Uh, they continue to, now the oil that they sell is going still to China, to India, to Syria, some of its traditional markets. Uh, they cling to Europe, although we don't have any proof. Uh, and they've become very clever in trying to evade these sanctions. Uh, but it, it has made a pretty significant dent in, in the revenues of Iran. So given that one of the key sanctions on Iran is limiting its ability to move money through the global financial system, as you said, what is Iran doing to circumvent or go around the sanctions? Well, one of the things Iran is, is doing to uh, go around the sanctions is to ship its soil on tankers that are not registered under Iran. They do tanker-to-tanker or ship-to-ship exchanges of oil in open waters that they turn their GPS off, so it's hard to track them. They also change the documents on the ship, so the point of origin doesn't say Iran, it says another country. So they've become very clever. I reported on a, for the New York Times on a story about how Iran's oil data has become uh, a really valuable espionage information for Western uh, spy agencies, because for the Trump administration to be able to gauge how effective its, its sanctions uh, have been and whether how much of an impact it's having on Iran's economy, they need to know Iran's uh, output of oil and sales and revenue. And Iran has guarded that information extremely closely. The oil minister has said that our oil data is war data. So there's a lot of espionage and a lot of sort of intriguing ways that Iran is trying to figure out. One of the things that some of my oil sources in Iran told me uh, is that the oil ministry opens these bank accounts for just a few hours in different countries under different names, under, you know, kind of like front. And as soon as the money is moved, they close it. Those bank accounts exist only for a few hours, making it very difficult for the U.S. or Europe to actually track them down and see how they move money. How could they uh, move uh, tens of millions of dollars without being noticed? 
They do it through um, registering under names that are not Iranian, through banks that are very difficult to trace and that accounts that are open merely for a few hours and they're closed. As, as soon as the money moves, those accounts are closed. So it's hard to get a hold of them. Actually, one of my sources said, several of my sources said that the U.S. pays up to a million dollars for any information and the numbers of those bank accounts. Uh, and we saw in the news yesterday that Brian Hook, the special envoy for Iran in charge of the Iran policy of the Trump administration, had emailed the captain of the Iran tanker that was seized and had told, offered him millions of dollars in exchange of the captain sort of sailing the ship to shores of a country that was friendly to the U.S. and where the U.S. could seize that ship. So really the focus of the sanctions for the U.S. is targeting Iran's oil revenues and making sure that it, it blocks Iran's access to the revenues. These are the two key components of mm -hmm. sanctions. The rest are all symbolic. Like we've seen Ayatollah Khamenei's financial yeah. entity sanctioned. We've seen uh, the foreign minister Javad Zarif sanctioned. We, we see names of uh, revolutionary guards, commandos sanctions. These are all very symbolic because none of these people have any assets in yeah. the West. They don't have any bank accounts. But the sanctions that really aim to hurt uh, are the banking sanctions and the oil, oil exports. You spoke about U.S. trying to blackmail oil tanker captain on this ship mm -hmm. called Adrian Daria One, formerly known as Grace right. One. So what do you make of this latest news? The U.S. is extending its sanctions by, as I said, trying to blackmail and then threatening visa ban on the crew of the seized Iranian super tankers. Can you remind us of why this tanker was seized in the first place and why has it become such an important issue? This tanker symbolizes the U.S.'s ability or uh, lack of ability to stop Iran from selling oil, right? This tanker has become the embodiment of whether sanctions on Iran's oil are working or not, right? We know that despite the sanctions since May, we're now into September, Iran has been able to sell some oil, about 500 to 700,000 barrels a day. Now, if the U.S.'s goal is to bring that number down to zero or even bring it lower and lower because it wants to squeeze the Iranian regime economically, uh, what it needs to do is make the cost of aiding in Iran to transport its oil uh, very, very costly for anybody involved. And sort of the hierarchy involved in this transportation goes from the company that leases the tanker, the company that allows Iran to fly the flag on the tanker. Which is the Panamanian. Malta, they're just, right, yeah. the crew, the company that insures it. So they're really going after the lingers of people and entities that are involved in any transportation and sales of Iranian oil. Mm -hmm. Now, it's impossible for the U.S. to uh, actually uh, identify every single tanker out there uh, in open seas uh, as an Iranian one and try to do this. So now that it has found this uh, formerly Grace One, Adrian Daria One, uh, and it knows that this is an Iranian tanker with Iranian oil on board, it wants to really target it and put maximum pressure on it to make it an example for others that are out there. This tanker was supposed to deliver, this is what the United States claimed, that it was going to deliver oil to Syria. 
about 2 million barrels of oil. Correct. The U.S. and the U.K. say that uh, based on the information and intelligence they have, this tanker was going through uh, Gibraltar to the Mediterranean Sea and to Syria. Iran has denied this. Mm and said that this was not going to Syria, it was going somewhere else. They haven't, told, they haven't made it public where it was going because this is part of their secret oil data information. But now, because of all the pressure on this tanker, the tanker is sort of going around in circles. It first tried to go to Turkey, but Turkey didn't allow it. Oh, first it went, wanted to go to Greece, then it wanted to go to Turkey, then it wanted to go to Lebanon. And all of these countries denied access because of U.S. pressure. So it's now, I think the latest I heard was that it was in Syrian wires trying to figure out what, what to do. We might see this tanker go back to Iran to sort of, you know, offload and, and get the the pressure off it, mm. and then retire the ship for Iran, uh, at least, and then we'll see what happens with the oil and who's actually, who, we don't know who's the real buyer. There's no information. Bloomberg has reported that this tanker, this oil tanker, mm-hmm. has disappeared from satellite tracking not far from Syria's coast, prompting a speculations right. the ship is about to transfer its cargo to another vessel out of view of global ship monitoring system. And and Yahoo also has reported that they have turned off their trackers, which seems like Iranian ships do on regular basis. Do all the time. Right, exactly. So if this would be in line in, in how Iran usually attempts to deliver uh, its oil. It turns off the GPS. Other vessels come meet it in international waters. They also turn off the GPS and there's a ship-to-ship transfer. Now, mind you, this is exactly what North Korea has been doing, too, because North Korea is under sanctions to purchase oil. And we know that the North Koreans have been evading not just U.S. sanctions, but actually U.N. sanctions on purchasing oil by this ship-to-ship transfer. So ship-to-ship and turning off your GPS is a very classic way of trying to evade sanctions. So United States is trying to basically show that it can't stop Iranian ships right. from moving and selling their oils. And- exactly. That's exactly what the U.S. is trying to do. It's trying to make an example out of this one tanker and make the cost of uh, helping Iran sell its oil extremely high. So as I said, the U.S. has adopted this maximum pressure policy on Iran, and many argue that it's intended to force Iran to the negotiation table. You follow Iranian government's reaction to these backbreaking sanctions. What is Iran's policy and its approach to this issue? Iran's policy is twofold. Iran's policy is to increase um, the tensions that we've seen sort of take a much tougher stand when it comes to the Persian Gulf, seizing tankers, shooting down drones, you know, disengaging with the nuclear deal. Um, tomorrow, I think the third phase of not complying with the nuclear deal is, is set to go into place. So they're pursuing that. They're sort of pursuing a very hardline policy in trying to say, well, if, if you're not, if you're not letting us sell our oil and you're not letting us do banking as you were supposed to because of this of the nuclear deal, then we're go- not going to comply with some of the provisions of this nuclear deal. Uh, so they're doing that. On the other hand, they really started to engage and speed up diplomacy. We've seen Zarif make a worldwide tour, go from Europe mm-hmm. to G7 summit in France and 
uh, go to Japan, go to China. He's in Malaysia. So we, we've seen sort of both a hardline stand when it comes to military and nuclear policies, but also an escalation of diplomacy to try to get uh, either oil waivers from the United States or get the Europeans to buy its oil or to get now as uh, you know, President Macron of France is trying to mediate between them, get some sort of line of credit that allows them uh, to have access to oil revenues, basically. But the U.S. That's is not interested. Idea. But the U.S. doesn't seem to be interested in that um, line of credit. We don't know because Trump did say at the G7 summit that he might agree to a line of credit that would allow Iranians to get through this, as he called it, rough patch. Uh, so it all depends on what Iran is willing to concede to in exchange of the line of credit. I think these negotiations, there's intense negotiations going on uh, in the back rooms of, uh, I think, both Washington and Tehran and Paris as it's mediating between them. I think it's too soon to tell whether what Iran is willing to give up and what U.S. is willing to give. Mm. Um, it's too soon to tell. We don't know. I mean, the French first said, we're sure that the French president first said, oh, there's going, to, there's going to be a meeting between Rouhani and Trump. And then they said there might, there, there might be oil waivers or $150 billion line of credit. So it's very fluid, I think. So let's move on and talk about something that I think is getting hardly any attention. And I think it's one of the most important aspects of these sanctions. The U.S. claims that the food and medicine are exempted from the sanctions, but there is mm -hmm. ample evidence that the shortage of medicine has greatly impacted Iranian population by denying them adequate and reliable access to medicine and medical equipment. Can you tell us more about the impacts of the sanctions on availability of medicine? we should say is that Iran manufactures a lot of its own medicine. It imports some medicine that it can't manufacture, but a lot of your everyday medicine from painkillers to antibiotics to whatnot are manufactured in Iran, right? There About 80 percent. They're pharmaceutical companies that manufacture medicine. Now, these, ma these pharmaceutical companies need to bring import raw material. In order to import raw material, they need to have some way to pay for them, right? So the U.S. claims medicine is exempt. But if you block financial transactions, how can a uh, pharmaceutical factory import the tons of raw material it needs and pay for it? Those payments are not exempt, right? Financial transactions are not exempt. So we're not talking about when they say medicine is exempt, we're not talking about just bags of medicine going in in suitcases. Mm. We're actually talking about an industry, right? A whole big industry. And if that industry doesn't have access to the international banking system in order to be able to do financial transactions, then it impacts its production. So hence, we're seeing a, a, a very serious shortage of medicine in Iran. I spoke to one of my very close friends who's a doctor. She comes from a family of doctors, her parents are, and her grandparents, her husband, they're all doctors. And she was saying that when I prescribe medicine for my patients, I don't know if they're able to find them because even if we tell them go get antibiotics, 
they go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy is rationed all the medicine. They won't give them a box of Tylenol or a box of antibiotics. They just sort of take a sheet or they give them 10 pills and say, this is all we've got. Come back in 10 days. If I have more, I'll give you. Or the medicine uh, that for chemo or for Alzheimer's that's being imported, it's become extremely expensive and hard to find in markets. Anyone who has Iranian relatives in Iran knows that if you're going to Iran, the first thing they're going to ask for is, is medicine. When you say, what do you want me to bring you? They say medicine, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a real problem. There's a le- real human impact uh, of the sanctions that unfortunately sort of gets lost in all the policy talk and the you know talk of oil and nuclear policy and military policy and tensions. But we're actually talking about 80 million human beings and families and kids that are living there and their lives are impacted from the price of food to getting access to crucial medicine. Farnos, you covered the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq. You lived in Iraq, reporting from that country. How do you compare the sanctions on Iran with those imposed on Iraq during Saddam's era? I went to Iraq when Saddam was still in power, and then I went uh, at the time of the invasion. And even when Saddam was still in power, you could really feel the impact of the sanctions because the sanctions had been in place for a very long time. You could you could see that people were, um, you know, they didn't have much that they were making do. That there was a real that their hospitals and medical care and everything had sort of just uh, deteriorated over time, right? And I think if the sanctions continue, Iran will face a similar problem. You know, the Iranians are making do. We have good health care and good education. And they're great Iranian doctors. But if depends on how long they go on. If sanctions go on as long as they did with Iraq, then we will see a very you know sad and similar impact. But it's good health care for people who can afford it. Right, good healthcare for people. What I meant is we have good doctors and good physicians. I didn't mean that we have. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it's not free. You need to. Um, yeah, you I have mean, there to are have money. Hospitals. There have been many reports that if you don't have money and you go to the hospital, even if I think there was a report of a child that needed stitches, yeah. Yeah. and they took him. It was a small town, if I'm not mistaken, near Esfahan a few years ago, and they mm. refused to accept uh, them. To to accept them, and it became a big scandal. And I think they fired the head of the hospital and it became a public scandal thanks to social media because there was public outrage about it. So yes, there's that as well. Um, I was wondering, is there a different financial system, global financial system for food and for medicine as opposed to for oil and um, other major commodities? There's not a global, separate global financial system, but the Europeans have created this in a financial channel for this purpose, for Iran to be able to do the trade that it needs and have access uh, to money. That hasn't really been functional, and, and Iran wants that to also include oil revenues and Europeans buying 700,000 barrels a day of oil from Iran as you know, per, but, but that also creates a lot of problems because a lot of these oil com- European oil companies are not state-owned. They're private, and they are, you know, they have a lot of business with the U.S., so they're not going to risk secondary sanctions of the U.S. government because they want to do business with, with Iran. So these this whole sanctions apparatus is very complicated, has many different 
components and layers, and which is why I think that, uh, in my opinion, from what I hear, that Iran wants to figure out a way to negotiate because it's it's really uh, hurting. It, it, I don't think they can survive. Yeah, it's mm. hurting, and I think reality is dawning on them that Donald Trump might get reelected, and the economy can't sustain this level of pressure for another four years or another. You know, six years. One more question about this financial channel, as you said, Instex. Right. So if, for example, Iran wants to buy, let's say, I mean, medicine for Alzheimer or mm-hmm. for certain types of cancer, why can they use, since food and medicine is presumably exempted from sanctions, mm-hmm. why can they use this existing financial channel to buy medicine, to basically pay a European pharmaceutical company through this system? Well, we have to, this system hasn't, hasn't been operational for that long, so we have to see how it does. The idea is that they uh, will be able to, but it's a new one, right? Oh, I it's see. a new system. Right. So more broadly, how are these sanctions hurting Iranian population? Iranian currency has lost nearly 70% of its value against major currencies. Prices of essential goods like food, clothing, housing are skyrocketing. We talked about availability of medicine. Can you give us some concrete examples of how ordinary people are coping under such dire economic circumstances? I think everybody's purchasing power has shrunk according to their level of assets and income. I think it's affected everybody because when your uh, currency devalues as, as dramatically as Iran's did over the past year, when prices of goods go up up to 100%, mm. it affects everybody. I think for the middle class and the working class, we hear families that can't afford to have any kind of protein meat or chicken for several months that they've had to, Iranians have had to change their diet uh, because they can't afford the goods, that buying a house or even renting a house is much more difficult. Finding jobs is difficult. People have to work several jobs. I mean, Iran's economy hasn't been great, and a lot, part of it is because of sanctions, and part of it is because of mismanagement and corruption and just not a healthy financial system. So you take that dysfunctional economy and you add sanctions, international sanctions to it. And yes, people are hurting. Yeah, and very opaque. A lot of the statistics and figures that we see cannot necessarily be verified. Right. It's very hard to verify (coughs) numbers and really know whether the uh, numbers that the government gives for inflation are the same as what actually is. But what we know anecdotally from speaking to Iranians and interviewing them uh, is that, uh, you know, their purchasing powers are shrinking, that the that they, their price of everyday goods that they need, basic food items, has skyrocketed in the past year. You have spoken to some of the officials in, inside Iran. What are they saying about the impacts of sanctions on the government's ability to generate revenue? Iran mainly depends on oil revenues, which constitute around 40% of the government's current budget. Last Iranian fiscal year, the share of oil export revenues in the budget was about 33.3%. This is according to a report by Radio Fardo. 
Rouhani has recently claimed that the country has been through the worst part of it and the economy will be doing better and will be on the upswing. Well, the Iranian officials are, are known for sort of defiant rhetoric and uh, trying to sort of tap into that revolutionary zeal of we will get through this and, you know, we are, uh, we're going to manage economically. Uh, but at the same time, if you listen and follow their speeches closely, everybody, even Mr. Rouhani, act, acknowledges that sanctions are hurting the country. Uh, I, I haven't ever heard anybody say that, oh, sanctions are nothing, they're not hurting us, that, you know, they're having no impact, because they are. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to live there. You can't, it's a fact that you can't really deny. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they think sanctions are going to uh, topple the regime or create the kind of uh, instability that Washington hoped. Now, part of the U.S.'s maximum pressure campaign on Iran uh, was sort of geared toward uh, hoping that these economic pressures and sanctions would lead the people to rise up against the regime. But we've seen in North Korea, even in Iraq, in Libya, in Cuba, in all these cases we've seen in Venezuela, that sanctions alone, short of a military intervention, uh, can't really, when you're dealing with dictatorships, when you're dealing with countries that crack down very harshly on dissent and uh, in case of Iran, you know, the, the factory workers that were protesting because of their lack of pay uh, have been thrown in jail and given sentences of up to 20 years, right? So Iran's treating this, any sort of protest or uprising about the economy as, as a foreign sort of instigated threat and cracking down on them. We haven't really seen the kind of massive uprising that Washington had hoped from Iran. We do see many pockets of protests and people being very angry about it, but it hasn't materialized into an uprising against the regime. Farnos Fasihi is a reporter with The New York Times. She spoke with us from New York. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Tel Aviv on Fire is an innovative comedy imagining a fictional cultural bridge between Palestinians and Israelis, in which a West Bank-based TV producing company produces a soap opera revolving around the story of a female Arab spy and an Israeli military officer who fall in love with each other. With riveted audiences on both sides of the green line following each new episode fervently. If that rare romance does seem odd enough, even in a fictional setting, the plot of this soap opera within the film is also being written jointly by two individuals on opposite sides of the conflict, a Palestinian working for the production company producing the soap opera and an Israeli captain at one of the infamous checkpoints the Palestinian writer needs to cross on a daily basis en route to his job. The absurdities born out of these premises makes for a delightful, if oddly depoliticized, comedy. Khalil Bendeep spoke with Sam Zouabi, the director of Tel Aviv on Fire. Sam, your film Tel Aviv on Fire which has won top awards not only in Israel but in various film festivals across the world, is a light-hearted comedy on a theme that is usually not treated as funny, and that's life in occupied Palestine. You have co-written and directed this film, which is officially an Israeli film, and you are yourself an Israeli citizen but of Palestinian descent. This uh, dual identity and life experience have made for a very unique film that perhaps only an Israeli-Palestinian could come up with. The story of a fictional soap opera centered around the love story of an Arab woman with an Israeli man. How did this idea come about? Ideas don't just come up <laughs> just overnight, you know. It's a process. I think this film happened over time where it started when I, really when I started making films. I always realized being such a, in such a particular reality where you are Palestinian, you grow up inside Israel, you speak Arabic and Hebrew, and, and of course you, to make movies, I mean, when I made my first movie, I had access to the Israeli Film Fund to be able to do the film and then, you know, do a co-production with Europe. But each time I make a movie, it always comes with that responsibility, which is, you know, you become under the microscope in a way. For Israelis, they always want to make sure that you're not turning too Palestinian on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for the, for the Arab and the Palestinian population, they always want to make sure that you're not selling out to the occupier. That's right. So it's always like that, you know. So it's examining my work is always like, okay, is, what is he trying to say? Is he with us or against us? And, and that notion of how divided the narratives are and how everyone is carefully wants to make sure that their perspective is presented on screen is is something that both created a sense of responsibility for me, but also, you know, curiosity. And I guess my creativity went in that direction to see, okay, well, it would be great to make a movie about someone who's trapped in that in that middle. And of course, for comedies, it's, it's the perfect character. I mean, the perfect character is someone who's thrown into a situation that he cannot really control very much, but he's struggling to, I think, which is, I think, in many ways, it's the, the creative process that we go through. We make a movie and then we throw the idea out there for people to 
to interpret it, especially politically, because of that's what everyone is looking for, the politics. And what he what, what is the creator of this show or this film is, is trying to say. Yeah, and I must admit I had the same reflex throughout the film, even though I was really enjoying it and didn't really matter that much. And this, I, I think you managed to kind of straddle that fence, and it's not obviously <laughs> one direction or the other, sort of neutral. But I imagine that as an Israeli-Palestinian, you get tough criticism from both sides. Palestinians will see your work as a form of collaboration, and the, others, the other side might be worried that you're subverting Zionist values. So I imagine it must be a tough spot to be in, although at the same time it allows you to create these really unique stories. To summarize, if I can summarize this quickly for our viewers, in a way it's the soap opera itself that's the real protagonist in, in this film. It's about an Israeli military, not your film, but the, the film is about the story of an Israeli military officer who falls in love with an Arab woman who's supposed to be a spy for the Palestinians and is supposed to kill him, but she falls in love with him instead. And the local viewing community out there, Arabs and Jews alike, are following every new episode of this soap opera with bated breath. Of course, this is satire, and as such, it doesn't aim for the highest, highest level of realism. But one thing that immediately surprised me about your story was that even in a fictional context, Israeli Jews watching an Arab TV series, it was surprising, even though it seems that those Israelis happen to be Mizrahi Jews in your film. Is there enough of an overlap culturally still, even after this Israelization of the, the Arab Jews? Is there still enough of a cultural affinity for Israelis to watch an Arab film or is it completely fictitious? You know, sadly, you know, the reality now is, is total disconnect. And that's why the film was, was trying to make fun of that reality a little bit, because mm. Israelis and Palestinians live across the opposite side of the fence now, and there's no way for them to connect anymore. And it seems like that's the policy, the political agenda that exists now is let's create checkpoints, walls, separation, because... God forbid if people actually met, they might like each other. So so I think we are in that business politically of keeping people away from each other's humanity because that will create a, somehow a self-reflection and a possibility of like people not wanting the status quo, which is basically maintaining and managing the occupation and not solving it. So, so yeah, that is, is the sad reality. Is just you have to imagine, you know, a Palestinian who lives in the West Bank will never meet an Israeli because they cannot access that daily interaction. The only thing they see is, is a soldier. And the Israelis also have no interest in visiting the West Bank because when they serve in the army, that's what they see and they try to disconnect from it. So we are, we are in this reality of people not really interested in seeing each other or meeting each other. And the political reality doesn't allow it even if people are interested. You know what I mean? So... So the film has actually does not live in it live in that maybe nostalgia of that possibility, but the reality is far from it. Mm. People don't expect it either because there was a time, and I remember growing up watching watching films, Egyptian films. You know, there was an Egyptian film that played on Israeli TV every Friday at 7 p.m. for many years, for like 30 years, I think. And my memory of that, that everyone was waiting for that Egyptian film to watch, both Jews and Arabs. So when people actually see the film back home, they always 
refer to these, this period of people actually watching the same show. So there is a precedent. It's not complete science fiction what you're describing. This, it has happened in the past. All it takes really is some subtitles, really, in Hebrew to allow Jews to watch an Arab film like this. Yeah, I mean, now, you know, people actually, they, they watch more Turkish soap opera. Mm. <laughs> soap opera also have, you know, with the years have evolved. And I think there's anything in common now that people actually watch soap opera coming from Turkey is, is, a, is a very popular show now. I know it is in, in Arab countries, but how about the Israelis? Do they also watch the Turkish soap operas? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, so they are subtitled in Hebrew and people are watching yeah, them. Yeah, or dubbed. Sometimes they dub it, actually. Or dub it. So last year I interviewed Israeli novelist Dorit Rabinian about her novel All the Rivers. I'm sure you've heard of it, in which an Israeli Jewish woman falls in love with a Palestinian. And it seemed that her story which was based on a true story, was also possible between Mizrahi Jews and Arabs, perhaps thanks to some residual cultural proximity between Arabs and Arab Jews. But one of the things that struck me about your film is that the Jews that are portrayed in it are pretty clearly to me, uh, at least Arab Jews, maybe second, third generation, but from somewhere in the Arab world, the the main actor seemed to me Moroccan, no? Biton, isn't that Moroccan? Uh, yeah, I think he's a, he's a mix of Moroccan and Iraqi. So that made it to me a little bit more plausible, the fact that we were dealing in this particular story with Arab faces on both sides, the Jewish Israelis and, and the Palestinians, both kind of watching the same thing without too much of an obvious contrast in terms of skin tone or that sort of thing. Am I reacting correctly to that, or is that just a coincidence that you had Arab Mizrahi Israelis rather than just uh, Ashkenazi, for example? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it was a clear, conscious decision. I mean, that the, you know, there's a lot of Jews who come from the Arab world, and uh, they speak Arabic, and my character in that film is one of them. And it, it's just to remind people also that there is that you know, reality exists as well. But I wasn't, you know, and I think it just contributes to the the plausible connection that right. could create right. it and the use of language as well. Yeah, so it didn't seem that shocking or that unbelievable that, yeah, you had some Jews watching this show. The Zionism has unfortunately erased or fastidiously tried to erase any trace of Arabness in Arab Jews of Israel, and that's been documented by Israeli-Iraqi scholar Ela Shohat in her classic film, Forget Baghdad, and her many books. You're saying there's still some residual cultural affinity, even though politically there's a huge chasm between Mizrahi Jews and their Israeli Arab neighbors? Politically, I mean, I don't want to start talking about the <laughs> Analyzing the politics in your film is one thing you should not be doing, in a sense. I mean, there's all these nuances that I think a lot of audience take with them, and I like the film to speak to speak for itself on, in that regard. And so I think you know our discussion is going in, in the places where I have to explain those decisions politically, which I think uh, sometimes it's, it's, it requires more than one show to explain it. But um, but the idea is, is very clear. I mean, you know, there's a lot of Jews who came from the Arab world and who were not accepted culturally. And they, them, they even have felt like the complexity of their background to be accepted by the front runners of the Zionist organizations that, that came from Europe. So, so a lot of, lot of Jews from the Arab world came and they still 
you know, listen to Um Kultum and they still watched Arabic films and they still listen to Arabic music and still exist uh, up until now. But politically, they might they meant to feel uncomfortable with it. Right. So I mean, my film doesn't deal with that necessarily. I'm not talking because there, there was a genre in the Israeli film history. I mean, there was a genre in the 70s called the Borekas movies, which dealt exactly with that, with the, the tension that exists between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi Jews in Israel. So so my film doesn't really deal with this reality. I think my film is dealing with with a different reality. My film deals with the Palestinians living under occupation, trying to maintain their voice in this mess of, uh, of a situation that has no clear ending, in a sense. Like, you know, even the, 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 the reality of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict starts to feel like a soap opera of its own. One thing that I really liked about the film so much is the, beyond the originality of the theme, an Israeli-Palestinian romance was the fact that it's a story about a story. I always like that. It's it's in a way writing about writing, creativity about the creative process. And just like you yourself in your film, there's somebody else co-writing the film with you, Dan Kleiman, who, by the way, I'm not sure is American or, or Israeli. So just like in your film, you also co-wrote the story, and it's about co-writing an episode of the whole series on TV. Tell us about this co-writing process, which really interests me. The process itself is a very, it's a very common right. process. I mean, all my films that I've written, I, you know, as a director, I ha always had a co-writer and uh, has nothing to do with the process of the film, in a sense. I mean, the story itself, it is about the process of creativity and it's about the process of being trapped in a political reality where you're trying to find your voice, but you have all these forces that try to infiltrate into that creativity and how you manage to to find your own voice when everyone is want, wanting or expecting certain things from you, which is refers to earlier on the dilemma of being Palestinian telling his story, you know, in such reality where you grow up inside Israel and you still have, you know, you are part of the Palestinian people and what kind of story you want to tell. It's that's the process has nothing to really do with the way we wrote the script. Dan Kleiman is my my friend. He was my teacher at the university. He's an American screenwriter. You know, the idea came and, and because of that trap that when you come from this part of the world, everyone is expecting you to write uh, in a certain way. And I, I wanted to make a, a film about that. I mean, the film in general talks about the inequality that exists. There's a clear, clear definition. It's not about two people who want to write. You know, the Israeli soldier is dictating his own vision. I mean, he ha he holds the power. Mm. So we're talking about here about the power dynamic that exists in reality, which is the powerful, uh, the oppressor is trying to write the history the way he sees it, ignoring the reality and ignoring the the voice of the oppressed, which is my main character in the film. And then how that dynamic starts to feed in, into the show is the core core of the film that holds both humor and and tension as well because, because of it. I like the motif of this power dynamic within the writing team. It wasn't just the Israeli dictating. The Palestinian was pretty crafty too. He would find ways to go around the dictates. He was also writing. So that, I thought, was an interesting maybe metaphor for the, the entire political situation. But again, the fact that you co-write the story, you say has nothing to do with the, with the story itself, but it's a nice parallel for me 
because I, I've always been interested in co-writing teams. When you see Woody Allen co-writing with uh, Brinkman, or Annie Hall, for example, I've always been curious about that process. I'm sure it varies from team to team, but in your case, is there like a leading writer and somebody else who kind of helps? Or do you guys just get together and brainstorm and come up with every step of the plot together? The genesis of the idea was was me coming up with the idea and seeing the film, and then the, my co-writer came after, and then we start to... So it's not that we initiated together. It was my initiation, and then and then the coming together to write the best version is, is what happened. And, you know, there's no dynamic in... I mean, a writer... You know, working with another writer is always different. It depends on the sensibility. It depends on the type of story. So it happened that me and Dan, we had a great relationship, and we we still work together on other films that has nothing to do with Palestine or Israel either. So, you know, it's a common thing. You know, making a movie is a collaborative effort. I mean, you can't make a movie by yourself, whether it's in the writing or visual translation of that script you still have to work with a director of photography with the production designers and so it's always you're always collaborating and making with creative people to make your story but you know of course you know the the leading power is the vision of the of the the director and, and if it happened to be the writer as well but that's that's the beauty of it i love working with a writer and i love working with dan because we had a very fluent relationship we were able to feed from each other's ideas and play with our ideas and until it's it feels right so i know that the film has won one of the top film awards in israel but how is it doing in terms of popularity are people receiving it favorably israeli jews how are they reacting to this this story is that something they're able to enjoy and accept it was well received in both on both sides i think you know the film is very although it's a comedy it's it's a very real film that talks about real issues that i think people are you know aware of and they they can connect with so so far from my experience it's been well received on both sides of the the fence in a sense because I think because of the tone as well. I mean, comedy kind of allows the audience, uh, you know, I guess a different experience to the dramatic elements of, of the reality. So it's, it's allowed them to see it in a different way that sometimes if it comes in too real, I think people would want to walk away from it. So um, one of the biggest things is usual, you know, making a film about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is that people who are involved in it they don't necessarily want to see it because they see it in real life they see it on in the news so so they're not really engaged as much in that process i think in this case it was a little bit different i would say because of the comedic aspect right at least you know there's a sense that you can still enjoy the film and laugh and and be entertained while you're actually watching something that is very politically challenging for both sides. Humor is the magical element. It disarms people's guard. That's what I do in, in my life as well. I'm a political cartoonist, and there's a lot of very, very, very serious things that I manage to put across to people who would disagree otherwise, but they will read it and laugh because of their humor, and you're able to touch people. It's a disarming weapon humor can really work magic and that's obviously one of the strengths of your film thank you you have an interesting position you're able to work 
or, or at least do some of the work that you need to do. You got support from the Israeli Film Institute. Tell us a little bit about that. Is there a space for people like yourself, even in such a lopsided colonialist type of situation? Is Israel using this kind of film, this kind of opportunity that offers to people like you as a way to to improve its image? Or is that just part of reality that they do accept Palestinian Israelis like yourself? to express themselves. People have agendas all the time, and, and that's what my movie's about. You're asking me about what the movie is dealing with. It's, it's clearly I'm still dealing with it as we speak at the same time. So what, what is reflected in the film is still the reality after the film is made, this trap between the two sides. And so financing the film is part of it. You finance a film, and you know as a citizen, you have, you're eligible for the fund, but... When I got the money from the fund, there's people who are filmmakers and people who are in the industry who evaluated the script, not on a political basis only. I mean, it, it was evaluated on a, in the merit of a, of, a, of a script and a story that needs to be told. So, And now, whether you're politically going to be used or not, that's something that is always going to be there. And as, a, as an artist, you have to be careful. You, know? you have to maintain your identity and your voice in this, in this reality. And this is what my main character is trying to do, is maintain his voice and find it and forge forward in a time where everyone wants to use him politically for their own reason. For now, you, know, I mean, you maintain that. You maintain your identity identity as a, as a Palestinian throughout the process is very important for me. Thomas Zorabi is the director of the award-winning film Tel Aviv on Fire. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. Tel Aviv on Fire is currently playing in the Bay Area at Landmarks Shadak Cinemas and Landmarks Guild Theaters in San Francisco. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. 
Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.